China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, who has represented Illinois' 8th District since 2017. He's also the ranking member of the House Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Audio for this discussion comes from a public event we hosted with Representative Krishnamurthy at CSIS earlier this week. We discuss the Select Committee and its work, his assessment of China policy more broadly, and his expectations for the upcoming meeting between President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of APEC. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome. My name is Jude Blanchett. I'm the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. Really delighted to be hosting this this conversation, and really delighted to uh, have in in the studio here in CSIS Representative Raja Krishnamurthy, who since 2016 has been representing the Eighth District in in Illinois. Uh, wears many hats, has many titles, uh, a prestigious CV. For the purposes of our conversation today, though, uh, on U.S.-China relations, on our U.S.-China policy, uh, and we'll also dig into some of the international events going on, the title that matters most for us is he is the ranking member of the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party, which, as most would know, was formed earlier this year with a mission to work on a bipartisan basis to build consensus on the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party and develop a plan of action to defend the American people, our economy, and and our values. Um, So we're really delighted to have you here. Uh, Appreciate your time, and and thanks for coming over to the mothership. Hey, thanks, Jude. Great to be here. So we have a a relatively short amount of time, so we'll forego with the normal uh, pleasantries and chit-chat and just dive right into it. I wanted to talk about three broad buckets uh, today in the conversation. First, I I wanted to get your assessment of the Select Committee, um, how you think things have gone, um, what's the work ahead, what are the gaps you still uh, need to fill. I then wanted to ask you a bit about America's China policy more more broadly. Sure. Outside of the purview of the Select Committee, um, how are things going? Where are the critical gaps that that you see? What's going right? And then finally, we're on the cusp of a uh, proposed bilateral meeting between uh, President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, uh, the the president of the PRC and the general secretary of the CCP. So I wanted to ask your your thoughts on that as well. But why don't we dig right into the the committee formed earlier this year. um, And I'm curious, over the course of uh, these sort of nine or 10 months, how is the committee doing so far? Let me just start with that that basic open-ended question. I think it's going well. Uh, You may know that the legislation creating the committee passed with almost 370 votes. Uh, Few measures seem to command that much support in the House these days, but it was on a bipartisan basis, and we had three different missions. Assess the technological risks associated with the competition with the CCP, the military-slash-national security risks, and then finally the economic risks, and also to suggest ways to deal with those risks. Um, You know, we started off basically looking at the military slash national security risks because the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act process, was underway 
almost at the start of the committee. And so we put out a, uh, a report called 10 for Taiwan, 10 recommendations to deal with Taiwan, which helped to inform the NDAA process. Many of our recommendations made it into the uh, NDAA. Of course, now that's a work in progress uh, as we go through the budget uh, year. Uh, We've also put out a report with regard to the Uyghur genocide and put out a series of legislative recommendations with regard to tightening up the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is the primary vehicle for how we try to deal with the genocide and uh, goods that are imported from Xinjiang province where the genocide is happening. I think that you know going forward, we hope to see that report get translated into legislation that passes through the committees of jurisdiction. But overall, it's been done in a bipartisan manner and a thoughtful, serious way. And credit goes to former Speaker McCarthy, as well as Leader Hakeem Jeffries, for creating a space where we can actually do some serious work. And they selected excellent members on both sides to populate the committee as well. You know, I should have asked you this at, at the beginning. Just um, what was your own personal evolution to become interested on the issue of China. I'm curious, you know, in the lead up to actually taking the position as the ranking member, um, how much were you thinking about China? What, what were your concerns? And just how did you get interested in this, in this topic? I think probably there are three sources of, um, I guess, areas of interest for me with regard to China. One is I was a small business person in a past lifetime and actually visited China uh, for my business. Um, we were also, by the way, the subject of hacking, and we were, we were a target of intellectual property theft. Oh, join the club. That's yeah, exactly. It. It's a big club, unfortunately. Um, obviously, I'm an Asian American. I've had extensive interaction with the Chinese American community over the years and have always been concerned about, uh, for instance, the rise in anti-Asian hate, which we actually saw skyrocket during the Trump years. And then I think a third area is um, I'm on the Intelligence Committee, in addition to being the ranking member of this committee. And on the Intelligence Committee, we routinely are seeing kind of a proliferation of issues with regard to the CCP from a national security standpoint. And so when you combine all of those three different uh, sources of interest, it made a lot of sense for me, you know, wanting to be this in this particular position. So this is not a, a permanent committee. It's it's um, it, it will has it has a, a an end date in twenty twenty five. Am I correct? Uh, right. So, as you look um, at the year plus ahead and the remaining time for the select committee, you mentioned work that you've been doing on Taiwan, uh, on the genocide in Xinjiang. A lot of focus now on which I'll come to a little bit later on, thinking about the economic relationship and the role of U.S. companies. Um, what are the big gaps that you see the committee still has to, outside of that agenda we've just discussed, are there any other issues that you think are likely to be a big priority area? I think the economic issues. I think they're really complicated. They're messy. Uh, I think there are a lot of different constituencies and stakeholders who are giving us input on a constant basis with regard to this. But I think that's one area where we're hoping, again, to put out a bipartisan report and then legislative recommendations that we can then shepherd through the committees of jurisdiction. And I'm hoping that we can find the boldest common denominators, if you will, of the different ideas on both the Republican and Democratic side for how to deal with this economic competition. Um, 
none of the issues that you've worked on, <clears throat> Xinjiang, Taiwan, uh, U.S. companies in China are, are are uncontroversial, right? There's a lot of pushback. <laughs> there's a lot of heated views. Thinking about the the economic relationship in the period ahead, I mean, one of the things that's been a noticeable focus for you and Representative Gallagher and the committee as a whole is is thinking about where U.S. companies are um, acting in in ethically challenging ways, whether that's on the the human rights abuses in Xinjiang or where there's technology leakage into the Chinese ecosystem that can then again be channeled into significant or even marginal advantages for the People's Liberation Army. You uh, led a, a, a group, a CODEL, up to New York City in September um, to talk with Wall Street executive financial industry leaders. You've obviously been having a lot of those conversations here. You just give us a sense of what are some of the feedback you're getting from them, which gives you pause and makes this more complicated than you thought, and then going the other way, where do you think are the areas that the committee has done a, a good job of educating companies, investors about some of the risks they might have underappreciated? Right. Another great question. I think where we received feedback was, you know, please provide us with guidance <laughs> as to what's legal, what's not legal, what's ethical, what's not ethical. Because when we look at the rules and regulations with regard to investments in China right now, it's very confusing. And I think that was actually useful feedback. And quite frankly, it's kind of obvious once you start looking at the different lists of uh, companies and how they're not consistent. I'm talking about the entity list, the different lists that forbid investment in in China and so forth. I think the second question with regard to where we were educating them is one of the pieces of feedback they gave to us is, well, look, if, if we are not going to send money to China, if we're not going to invest in China, you know, Others will, including the Saudis, including Gulf countries, including others. So what do we accomplish by not investing in those companies? Because all that's going to happen is that someone else is going to make money and we're not. And so that's where we kind of pushed back a little bit and did some education and basically said, look, it's not just about money. It's also about technology, know-how, and values. If you were to talk to my constituents in Illinois, or for that matter, really anywhere in the country, and told them that, for instance, the Thrift Savings Plan, the Federal Thrift Savings Plan, which is the world's largest retirement savings plan, 401k plan, what, what have you, actually has funds that are invested in companies or subsidiaries of companies that are uh, associated with modernizing the People's Liberation Army or involved in perpetrating the Uyghur genocide, they would say, that's wrong. I don't want the return. It's, it's inconsistent with my values. And stop it. And so we were trying to tell them that that's kind of what people in our constituencies feel. We're also trying to say that where, for instance, venture capital funds or private equity funds are providing not only money, but potentially connections, know-how, prestige, networking, that also has an influence that goes far beyond just the money. Just a, one final follow-up on this. Um, in that feedback you're getting from the private sector of we want certainty, um, is that possible in the sense that, and this is a conversation of the past few weeks have been, and I've heard the volume turn up on this, is frustration with the frame, framework of, of small yard high fences. And the criticism is the, the size of the yard keeps expanding <laughs> and the fence keeps moving up. 
you know, we, we want certainly in my, you know, personal view is that's going to be hard to give because this is such a rapidly evolving space. Right. New technologies are coming online that we didn't dream of when we defined national security five years ago. There's new utilizations of those technologies. Right. And also this is a two-way discussion. So China will do something this, you know, the release of the Huawei Mate 60 while Secretary Raimondo was visiting Beijing and the, you know, the nationalist chest thumping right. that, you know, we've, we've, we've circumvented your export controls inevitably necessitates some sort of response. Right. So do, that was probably more of an editorialization than a question <laughs> about what I think, but do you think there, we will be able to get to some sort of equilibrium where companies have the certainty they need to make longer term investments? Or do you think this will be a, a, a necessarily a sort of a fuzzier, more volatile investment environment. I'm hoping that we can get to more of an equilibrium. I'm hoping that we can uh, give a little more predictability than we do right now. I think that ideally, Wall Street would like lists. You know, they want to name. They want to know names. They want to know. You know exactly what is their uh, description, and then they give it to their compliance department, and the compliance department screens all those entities off of their potential investments. But what we find with regard to the PRC and the CCP is that, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You know, you put one name on the list and then you put that, uh, you, you say that that's a forbidden investment, and then all of a sudden another name pops up right. with the same owners. And, uh, and so they evade those lists. And so I'm glad that the administration took more of a sectoral approach than a list approach uh, and a countrywide approach, as opposed to just a region or a place. All that being said, you are absolutely correct that it's going to be slightly iterative because we are still learning about the uses of AI, for instance, um, artificial intelligence. Um, we are still learning about how certain technologies could, you know, metamorphosize into being weaponized. Um, and I think industry and you know private investors are going to have to probably wait a little bit to see how that iteration takes place uh, to have real certainty but i don't think that certainty is going to be there at the start final question on the um can i say one other thing please. on that i do think that there are a number of investment funds uh, and we talked to some of them for instance in new york city that they basically said we know, you know, we, we want to be a little bit far of the line uh, between what is a civilian use and a military use. And, and I think there's going to be a little bit of kind of assessment of whether fusion is going to be military civil fusion is really a practice that is, a, is followed by the target investment yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and just, um, I know there's a lot of frustration about the um, the lack of clear lists, negative lists, boundaries, and I think those criticisms are fair, and, and that's that, that's part of the the messy policy process here. I do think it's worth um, just stating ultimately, though, the reason we're having this this discussion and this challenge is because the lines in Beijing have become so blurred right. between what is civilian, what is strategic, what is military, what is civilian. So it's just put. Those who are interested in following a rules-based, you know, economic integrated order in a very difficult position of trying to navigate 
terrain which has been defined by China, which is intentionally designed to blur these blur these distinctions. So for all the frustration that is, you know, directed at lawmakers, <clears throat> I think it's worth pointing out who, who ultimately is responsible uh, for, for this mess. That's right. Um, final question in this um, section, and then I want to turn to, to uh, U.S.-China policy more broadly, but, but this is maybe a good uh, bridge to that. This is a the select committee is focused on strategic competition um, with the United States and, and the CCP. This is a common uh, question. It's a hard one. But if we're thinking about a competition, most competitions have, you know, binary competition end states, right? That you are, there's a finish line, the clock runs down, there's a scoreboard. Um, what is your what is the committee's mental map of this, or what's your own personal mental map of it? How will you know in 20 years that we ha are winning or, or have won the competition? I think if we're in more of an equilibrium uh, in terms of our relationship, one that's more stable than it is right now. I think right now we're kind of sliding toward a place where no one wants to go, in my opinion, which is... Um, you know, I was just looking at a survey of Americans showing that a majority of voters think that within the next 10 years, there's a 50-50 chance of an armed conflict between the U.S. and China. And it turns out, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a big surprise, but three quarters of voters, Republicans and Democrats, don't want a war. So I think, like, not having a Who's war— Who's the one quarter that does? I know. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm not sure, but I, they might have come to my recent town hall, but we can talk about that <laughs> later. Um, I think that when we're in this kind of disequilibrium where we're sliding toward a potential armed conflict, you know we're in a wrong place. And, and I think that hopefully is a signal that we need to do something different. We need to prevent aggression— on the part of the CCP, protect our values, continue with engagement, but also up our game. And I can talk about that in more detail, but this CCP committee, I think, is that moment, you could say almost like a Sputnik moment, where we have to get our act together on this issue. Well, why don't we just, while you're on that, um, it, let me ask you an assessment of both within the com the committee and then looking across the entirety of of our our political economic military system, um, where do you think are the real key areas where you look at this and you think we've really really got to prioritize these two or three areas and massively step up our game? What would be that short list? Again, this is both <laughs> either within the the committee or you look across the entirety of of our political military system. Do you have an easy question for me? <laughs> I think this is this is a tough. Good question. In terms of prioritization, I think the number one thing is we have to prevent military aggression this moment. I think that right now there is a situation in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait that is untenable, which is you have the CCP actively throwing its military elbows, so to speak, at its neighbors, claiming whole swaths of territory which is otherwise international airspace or international waters as its own, and trying to resolve its differences not at the bargaining table, but through coercion. So I think on the military front, we have to bind with our partners, friends, and allies to prevent aggression. That means, for instance, making sure that Taiwan has what it needs to prevent an invasion or any type of coerced reunification. And then secondly, 
On the economic front, we have to do a number of things to protect our interests. And that goes to, for instance, uh, dealing with dumping, dealing with intellectual property theft, dealing with cyber hacking, uh, dealing with those outbound investments that are problematic. Also, um, making sure that we do whatever we can on the human rights front, which is an area that we've kind of walked away from over the last 30 years. I was talking to a very senior Democrat the other day who's been working on this for decades, and this person basically said, I've given up on human rights in China. I don't see how they're going to change their behavior unless we link it to our own policies here. So those are some of the areas uh, that I think we have to we have to prioritize. I would just say one last thing. I'm sorry for adding to this list, but if we think that this is all about just preventing the CCP from doing things and not making sure that we up our own game and fix our, you know, immigration system to retain and attract the best talent in the world, upskill our workforce, which is not prepared for all the jobs that are necessary for uh, the technologies of the future, or investing in those technologies to maintain our innovative le leadership, then we're not going to be doing the full job either. It's a good transition to, I hope, a slightly easier question, Thank you. which is um, <laughs> the China is one of these issues that um, is often framed as bipartisan. You often the, the framing in the newspaper article is something like, uh, you know, of all the political rancor in Washington, one issue that unites the, the political parties is is China. Hearing your last response, though, it struck me that that's a note I hear coming more often from Democrats up on the Hill. Um, you know, workforce upscaling, um, human capital, CHIPS Act, which which was, uh, right. um, uh, if I'm correct, I, I don't think any of the Republicans on the Select Committee voted voted for the for the CHIPS Act. Um, do you see this as a, a bipartisan issue? Um, if if there are areas where you see a, a discrepancy or a delta between Republicans and Democrats, where where are those areas? I think it's largely a bipartisan issue in this sense, which is I think everybody understands that there are a set of challenges that need to be dealt with, and they need to be dealt with now. So there's a sense of urgency. I think where there are differences, I think there's more uh, difference in terms of emphasis rather than just wholehearted you know, disputes. I'll just point to a couple. One is I think that some of my Republican colleagues are a little uncomfortable with the amount of dialogue <laughs> that's happening at the highest levels between our two governments. I think it's a very good thing. I, I applaud the Biden administration for the amount of engagement that's happened recently. We must do everything we can to communicate, for instance, our concerns about aggression, whether it's military, economic, or on human rights, face-to-face um, -face and explain exactly where we stand. Also, I think the second issue where there's a difference of agree, you know, maybe a little slight disagreement is industrial policy. Uh, you are correct that I think the Chips and Science Act is heavily supported by Democrats, even though a number of Republicans supported it and it got through the Senate and the House in the last Congress. But I think that some of my Republican colleagues fear that, okay, is this a road toward picking winners and losers in our economy <clears throat> and doing some of the things that we are concerned that the CCP does. 
I think there are legitimate good responses from Democrats like me to those concerns, but those are a couple areas where I do see a little bit of divergence. Um, final question before I, I, speaking of engagement, I wanted to spend a, a few minutes talking about the upcoming meeting between uh, President Biden and, and, and President Xi, but l let me ask you, um, just look at the geopolitical map right now. Um, if we were to rewind in time three years ago, um, the United States had the ability to focus really on the Indo-Pacific. We didn't have, Vladimir Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine. We hadn't had the, the, the horrific October 7th uh, attack by Hamas on, on Israel. Um, we now have a, a, an incredibly complicated geopolitical landscape. Um, the administration is signaling it's not gonna tone down the, the tempo um, on the Indo-Pacific, um, but as we see, Secretary of State Blinken was was just out and is is out in the region now. Um, we're having a, a congressional, you know, um, a fight over thinking about the future of funding uh, on Ukraine. This feels like we're at a moment where we say we can walk and chew gum, but it does feel like we're really getting strained now. So as you think out about. Um, making the necessary investments we need to be making to position ourselves well for, for the Indo-Pacific, uh, keeping sufficient bandwidth of an already stretched thin Congress, which is not only dealing with foreign issues, but is dealing with a whole lot of domestic challenges. Um, are you worried about our ability to have a long-term competition with China as we deal with these exigencies of, of a international order, which feels like it's under an extraordinary amount of strain right now? I am concerned, although I think the Biden administration has done a good job of balancing the different challenges and trying to deal with them simultaneously. But at the end of the day, you need Congress to be a good partner in terms of formulating legislation and providing resources to deal with those challenges. Maybe I'll take a couple because, you know, they, I think, require urgent action. One is our military industrial base is stretched. Uh, I think that even just looking at Ukraine and Taiwan, it became clear that we have some issues with, for instance, manufacturing enough bullets and artillery shells and other types of armaments that are in high demand that are uh, really in great, um, in great need all over the world, but especially in, in these particular theaters. And I think that, uh, Unfortunately, we didn't do the multi-year appropriations in Washington, D.C. to make sure that even at the same time we were making new guns, we actually made enough <coughs> bullets for those guns, so to speak. Um, and so that's something where we have to invest in our military industrial base to provide the capacity to be the, uh, you know, as it, as, as it were, the arsenal of democracy today. I think a second issue is we have to continue to focus on these supply chains mm. and diversifying or de-risking these supply chains. I think that if we don't keep our eye on that ball, we are going to find ourselves in an even more tenuous position, whether it's in the, you know, the, the fight against climate change or whether it's with regard to active pharmaceutical ingredients, or whether it's even with regard to energetics, which are the you know, propulsive force in our ammunition. And so I think that we have to kind of walk and chew gum on some of these issues urgently, otherwise uh, we're gonna find ourselves in an even you know, 
worse position, you know, a couple of years, and we're not going to be able to deal with all these things the way that we can right now. When you go back to Illinois and you meet with with constituents, I'm curious for the the flavor of the conversations you're you're having about China, and I'm also just to try to tie it to this question. This might be something which, of course, you feel more acutely when you're in Washington and you're surrounded by you know people working in the national security space. This feels like one of these moments where, and this is not a partisan issue. I think if there's any other you know president political party in office, they'd be dealing with war in Ukraine, attacked by Hamas. This, this is just a, um, these are events that are um, uh, uh, occurring outside of U.S. You know, control. But I think it does put us in this challenging position of we're potentially looking at a very you know, dramatically changing geopolitical landscape moving forward. Do you get the sense that your constituents um, share some of the sentiment here in Washington about the world we face over the next year? And I guess the, the narrow question is, if we do think about these big new investments we're going to have to be making in the you know the, the defense industrial base, it, it, I don't want to call it industrial policy, but let's say things like the Chips Act. Um, do you think Americans are prepared to be able to support those and make some of the sacrifices necessary to support those? Potentially, but you have to explain it to them and you have to elevate the issue so that you can connect it to their everyday concerns. Um, a couple issues I think that people are concerned about are, for instance, um, the hacking and the IP theft. I hear about that almost all the time from my constituents. Uh, almost everyone has been hacked, it seems like, and they're worried about their personal information being in the hands of the CCP. It turns out, by the way, that there was testimony at our hearings that 80% of Americans' personal information is in the hands of the CCP and probably the other 20% as well. Um, another issue is IP theft, which I talked about earlier. Almost all of my business people, small business people, medium and large business people, others have experienced this and they want it to stop and they feel like this is something that uh, really hurts their ability to succeed uh, as an entrepreneur or as a as a sustaining business right now. Human rights, I hear about that a lot from different constituencies as well. And, and they're concerned about the slave labor that is being used to create consumer products and that's being sold in Timu and Xi'an. And, and that's undercutting the bricks and mortar stores that exist in my constituency. So you hear about all these, and I think what they want is they want to see smart action that leads to progress on those without leading to some kind of spiraling conflict with the Chinese. So it's kind of like a balancing act where we have to, we have to pursue smart, informed policy that lowers the temperature, but at the same time produces progress. And I think rhetoric is something that they are concerned about as well. They don't want to hear rhetoric that could uh, be provocative or that worse could lead to anti-Asian hate. Mm. So those are the kind of disparate kind of concerns or comments that I get. Could you just unpack that a bit more in terms of some of the um, concerns or feedback you get from members of Asian Americans, members of the AAPI community? Um, I've heard just informally as as the competition with China has heated up over the past three, four, five years, growing concerns from Americans yeah. of, of Asian descent. How do you think about that issue? How do you think about putting in place 
guardrails that constrain that even as we potentially move in towards a much more um, a fractious relationship with China. So I think the good news is that Chairman Gallagher, from the outset, along with other members of the committee on the Republican side, made it very clear that they want to make they, they, they want this committee not to be about a quarrel with the Chinese people or Chinese origin people or Asian people, but with the CCP. And that we, you know, abhor any kind of hate or prejudice or bigotry toward any of those groups. And so I, I applauded Chairman Gallagher when on Face the Nation, he actually said that uh, his colleague's remark condemning Judy Chu, my colleague, uh, Congresswoman Judy Chu from California, as somehow a spy or somehow affiliated with, you know, the CCP was, was wrong. And I think that was a good way to set the tone. All that being said, we have to be careful going forward how we talk about this issue, because after the Trump years where, you know, former President Trump kept calling uh, COVID Kung flu and so forth, I think that it's kind of spurred that anti-Asian hate <coughs> to a level where, you know, even the the most, um, you know, maybe a legitimate concern could get transformed into bigotry. So just as an example, we are concerned about the CCP purchasing land in the United States near sensitive sites. And that has happened. But we don't want a law like they, they passed and signed into law by uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida prohibiting anybody, even an, um, an innocuous purchase of a home by a grandfather from China near his grandchildren uh, merely because he's Chinese. Mm. That's wrong. And I think, so we have to avoid those situations where the rhetoric gets transformed into legislation or laws that could really go down the alien, you know, alien land laws of yeah. California path. Yeah, and without, on those state level uh, land bans without minimizing what is fundamentally the ethical problems there. I would just make the secondary note that those actions also feed directly into party propaganda, um, which is trying to paint the United States as, um, you know, bigoted, xenophobic. And then when you have some states 100%. adopting legislation, which basically affirms that it's a it's a propaganda gift. hundred percent. You know, the, the Chinese, you know this very well. One of their theories of the case, so to speak, about why uh, America is so weak, in their view, is that we are divided and that we are bigoted. We're prejudiced against each other. And so when we, you know, play to type, so to speak, it just feeds that propaganda machine and they then trot that out around the world. And so we're really hurting ourselves in the process. Let me, uh, in the, the few remaining minutes we have left, let me turn now to... Um, a very short-term issue, which is just the, the up, uh, proposed upcoming meeting between President Biden and um, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping at, at the margins of APEC. Um, your, your colleague, uh, Representative Mike Gallagher, um, has, has, in a previous Wall Street Journal op-ed, has blasted the administration for what he calls a zombie engagement. Um, I I'm curious, you've already indicated you, you see this as good and, and uh, these these. Uh, meetings between uh, the White House and, and um, Xi Jinping as, as important. But curious, how do you, 
when you hear criticisms of the administration that it's sort of pursuing this this dead um, engagement strategy that we've all moved on from, do, do you see any of that in, in what the administration is doing? If not, what do you think the theory of the case is for why these high-level convenings are, are important? I think they're extremely important. I respectfully dis disagree with uh, criticism of this type of dialogue because only through this type of dialogue can we clearly communicate you know, our message about why you know, lowering the temperature and not taking aggressive military moves in the South China Sea or Taiwan will help the Chinese and, you know, the region as a whole develop and um, become stronger. Only by having this dialogue can we explain what the consequences would be if uh, the, the CCP continues with some of its more provocative actions. And it also gives us an opportunity to do some positive things, such as re-engaging on the people-to-people -people front. Uh, for instance, I think that the Fulbright Scholars Program in China has been paused. I think we want that to continue. We want flights, commercial flights, to continue in both directions. We also want to talk about human rights. Unfortunately, for years, we stopped talking about human rights, and we have to bring it to the fore again. Uh, I think there's any number of reasons why this dialogue is important, but having that person-to-person -person connection and saying, look, for instance, wouldn't it make more sense for us to open a military-to-military -military communications channel right now when just the other day, you know, a, a bomber, one of our bombers uh, was approached within 10 feet by a J-11 fighter of the People's Liberation Army? and almost had a collision. Imagine what would have happened if, those, uh, if there was a fatality. It's not going to be a repeat of what happened 23 years ago uh, when uh, Shane Osborne went down uh, in China off Hainan Island. By the way, Shane, Shane Osborne became treasurer of Nebraska <laughs> after that incident. He left the military and became state treasurer. Anyway, we have to think ahead. And we have to have some hopeful, hopefully concrete deliverables that come out of this meeting. I'm very hopeful. I think all of these meetings before this Xi, uh, Chairman Xi, President Biden meeting uh, will hopefully feed into a good session. As, as you know, some of the, the concerns um, about the meeting are that basically what China is trying to do is, is, is pull the administration in and leverage further dialogue and discussion as a way to slow down competitive actions. I think that's what the, the good faith concern is here. Um, it, I, I get the sense you don't see that as an issue with this administration. Do you, do you have any concern about um, our ability to withstand China's strategy of essentially dangling the prospect of cooperation on fundamentally critically important issues like climate change, like AI governance and safety, like food security? Um, do you see any tension there? Do you think we'll be able to essentially walk the competitive game and chew the, the dialogue gum at the same time? <laughs> I like that. Yes, I think we can. I think we're not going to be pulling punches. Um, you know, when I talk to Jake Sullivan or Gina Raimondo or others, I think I get the sense that um, we are simultaneously pursuing our interests and protecting our interests and working with our allies to do the same and engaging in dialogue. And I think that's what you have to do. If you only do one and not the other, I think that you really 
you know, leave some tools on the table. And so let us pursue both tracks. I think this, this administration can do it skillfully, and I think that's what the American people want. Um, probably the, the final question, looking at the time, so um, I don't know if this is easy or this is hard, but let's imagine we have a successful um, meeting between President Xi and President Biden. We've got a list of deliverables. Everybody looks at them and says, not bad, but we think about we've got an election coming up in Taiwan on January 13th with key questions about how China is going to react to a democratic election. We have, again, ongoing conflict in the Middle East, which is contained right now, but with no certainty that it will be in a day, a month, six months. We have the war ongoing in uh, Ukraine with growing concerns from uh, President Zelensky about the strength of U.S. support and signs of wavering. We have our own election coming up. Oh, uh, yeah, my election. Thank uh, you. Uh, oh, the, your election. Uh, <laughs> when I say the election, I mean the election, which, of course, is yours. No, uh, we, we have a presidential election, yeah. which is highly consequential yes. for us. Um, so I think the question for many is, okay, we have a decent meeting, then what? A final sort of um, curveball is, of course, we had a meeting between President Xi and President Biden in Bali, right. and then this dirigible <laughs> floated across the United States, which I think y you mentioned, you referenced the, the EP3 spike, you know, a, a collision from 2001, just shows you how, as Mike Tyson said, you can have a plan until you get punched in the face. And, and in this relationship, it is so contentious that the, the prospect of some event occurring in the second Thomas Shoal, Taiwan Strait collision could be a collision between one of our allies, uh, Japan. Um, or so Canada, I think yeah. The, the question yeah. is, yeah. how do we get through this next year or so? Um, what does this meeting give us of certainty that we're going to be able to navigate these extraordinary um, choppy waters? Well, look, I think there's that old saying, when you're fighting, you're not, I'm sorry, when you're talking, you're not <laughs> fighting. And so, but obviously, words need to lead to action. And so I think that's what people are going to be looking at following this meeting. What action is taken by the CCP to lower aggression, whether it's economically, militarily, or technologically? What can they do, for instance, also in other respects to lower temperatures, whether it's with regard to Iran and, and, and Hezbollah? or whether it's with regard to Russia in the Ukraine. I think that there are any number of dimensions where there could possibly be progress that helps us and helps them at the same time. The one thing that we, we didn't touch upon, which I think is kind of coloring everything right now, is just the economic tailspin that's happening in China right now. I think that Chairman Xi is under tremendous internal domestic pressure because of 22% youth unemployment rate because consumer confidence is at an all-time low. I think that we have to be mindful of that because I do think that just as he, on the COVID-19 zero-tolerance policy, zero-COVID policy, changed course 180 degrees from what he was before, may take actions, may take steps that could alter his trajectory on these other issues and lower aggression. We have to give that possibility a chance, even at the same time that we hedge and protect our interests. And so that's what I'm hoping we also see come out of this, this meeting. 
um, you and I sit down in 2030, um, if we get through the next six or seven years avoiding conflict with the United States, having avoided some of its own domestic um, challenges, and you feel like we're at your equilibrium that you articulated earlier, what will be the what will be the key factors which will have gotten us there? Do you think is Xi Jinping going to still be the uh, the actuarial chairman? Table? He, he's young by our standards; he's only <laughs> seventy, so so probably. Okay, well, um, maybe uh, in 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 seven or eight years, uh, my hope is that we will have done a few things. One is, as you said, avoided conflict, avoid avoided a situation that escalated into armed conflict. Secondly, that we did our part with regard to the economic issues to diversify our supply chains, to deal with the IP theft and the hacking, that we invested in technologies of the future, upped our own game, fixed some of our governance issues. And then finally, that we see some progress toward um, those human rights aspirations that we have with regard to the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Hong Kongers, dissidents, not only there but also abroad, that transnational repression is curbed, that we see signs that the CCP, or at least the PRC as a whole, is moving a little bit closer to the original aspirations that allowed us to uh, agree to their accession to the WTO. Uh, Bill Clinton said, to all members of Congress at the time, a vote for the WTO is a vote for more openness and freedom in China. That never happened. We were wrong about that bet. But now we have to protect ourselves and our interests and then give a chance maybe for something positive to happen, happen in the future. And um, I think that's the best that we can do at this moment. I think that's also as best we can do for a somewhat optimistic <laughs> way to end uh, uh, the discussion. I, I, Congressman, I want to thank you very thank much you. For, for your time. I want to thank you for your leadership on this issue, not only in the select committee, but uh, as a member of, of Congress. Um, and uh, I think we're lucky to have someone like you in this critical position at this critical time. Well, thank you, Jude. And thank you for uh, all the work that you did, including your book, <laughs> China's New Red Guards. Uh, this I, is I, not a paid plug, by the way. Just to, uh, <laughs> Available at Amazon. <laughs> um, but thank you for your incredible scholarship and for having me on your show. Thank you. And, and thanks to um, all you joining us uh, for the uh, event here today. Um, listeners of, of the Peking Ology podcast will uh, have, be listening to this conversation um, a, a few days later, but, but really appreciative of everyone's time and, and joining us for this important discussion and, and have a wonderful start to the week. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 